Um, we're just really kind of grateful for the amazing favour of God, actually, that we're experiencing. So please keep praying for us as we do keep praying for you and we spur each other on. Today we're continuing in our series in Matthew's Gospel. We're going through one of the books in the Bible that tells us about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And today we reach a really vital point, kind of a, a pinnacle point, a turning point in the narrative that Matthew is recording Fifteen chapters have built up to this point, and the remaining chapters will kind of uh, go down from and explain and work out what happens in the story today. And today it's the story of mistaken identity. And it's mistaken identity which leads to a wrong response. Because you see, to rightly respond to someone, to rightly interact with them, you've got to know who they really are. And I heard a story last week in all the kind of uh, royal wedding coverage, which I felt really well illustrated this. The story of um, Prince Harry was going to visit a charity that worked with young children. And there was this young boy who was just so excited about the fact he was going to meet Prince Harry. And he planned what he was going to say. He kind of been told you know, how to address the prince and all this stuff. And he was eagerly waiting. And while he's waiting, this guy comes up to him. And kind of starts talking and stuff. And so he starts telling this guy how excited he is. He's going to meet the prince and everything he's going to tell him and all sorts. What the little boy didn't realize was that was Prince Harry. And all the stuff he planned to say to him, all the, all the good ways he knew how to talk to a prince, completely went out of the, ha- out of the window because he didn't know who it was. He couldn't respond rightly because he didn't actually realize who he was talking to. And that's basically what happens in this story. Mistaken identity leads to a wrong response. The disciples are beginning to get who Jesus is but they haven't really got it. But once they begin to get it, Jesus can explain more, and then he can explain, given that that's who he is, this is how they are to respond. This is how we are to respond. So the challenge to us today is going to be, who do we say that Jesus is? Have we really understood that? And then are we correctly responding to that truth of who he is? So up until this point, we've had the birth of Jesus. We've had Jesus traveling around Galilee up in the north of the country. He's been teaching, preaching, healing people, showing people and declaring that the kingdom of God is breaking through. And we've seen kind of varied responses to Jesus. But now Jesus wants to know what his disciples are really thinking. What have they understood so far of who he is? And so he asks them. So let's pick up the story from uh, verse 13 in chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, Guys, 
Who are the people kind of around us? You know, the crowds, who are they saying that I am? That's what Jesus means when he says the Son of Man, alluding to Daniel 7 that we've heard already. And they say, well, different kind of things. Some people are saying, you're John the Baptist, his cousin, kind of come back to life. Some people are saying Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. All of these answers are saying, you're a, you're a kind of a mouthpiece for God. You're a messenger from God. But then he says, okay, but who do you? Who do you, my closest followers, who do you think that I am? Do they think he's a prophet? Do they think he's less than a prophet? More than a prophet? Something completely different. They say you, or Simon Peter speaks for them. He says you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. The word Christ is the same word as Messiah, just the Greek version. And it means anointed one. And you see, by the time of Jesus, there was this expectation, this waiting for God to send a deliverer. Someone who would get rid of the Romans who were ruling over God's people at this point. Someone who would re-establish their freedom in their own place so they could have their own rulers and they could follow God in that way. And son of the living God means the same thing. In the Old Testament, when it begins to talk about the fact this person is going to be sent by God, he's called the son of God. These promises are made about a king who will rule over an eternal kingdom. And God says, I will be to him a, son, uh, a father and he will be to me a son. Peter's saying, you, you're the promised one. You're the one we've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. You're the one who's going to deliver us. You're the one who's going to rescue us. And Jesus' response shows that Peter's right. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He's saying, you're blessed. God's shown you divine favor because you realized who I am. You know who I am. But he says, that's not coming from your own kind of clever wisdom. It's not that you're the clever guys and you've seen through it and understood it. He's saying, you only know that because God, the Father, has revealed that to you. He's opened the eyes of your heart. You're seeing who I am. And because Peter recognizes who Jesus is, God or Jesus can say some amazing things to him. And these are some verses that are a bit complicated. There's some quite debated stuff in here. So I'm just going to go through phrase by phrase so we can get a grip on what are these promises that Jesus makes to Peter. Things he can now do given that Peter has realized who he is. He says to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus is having a bit of fun here, actually. He's doing a bit of a wordplay. He's saying, you are Peter, you are Petros. And on this rock, on this Petra, I'm going to build my church. You are the foundation on which I'm going to build this. And this is a really controversial point. What is this rock on which this church is being built? You might know that in Catholic teaching, the idea of having a pope and a succession of popes comes from this. The belief is that the popes are these successors of Peter and they've inherited these promises. And therefore, lots of Christians who aren't Catholics try to avoid saying he's saying Peter is the rock. They say, well, the, the confession is the rock or maybe Jesus is the rock. But the reality is when you read the text, Peter is the rock. But there's no ideas of succession here. There's no ideas of bishops, of popes. He's just saying, Peter, you're going to have a foundational role in my church. And if you kind of turn a few pages and go to the book of Acts, which tells us about how the church got started, that's exactly what happens. Peter is a key figure, a key leader. He gives some key sermons where he proclaims the truth of what God has done in Jesus. And people in response come and they follow Jesus. He's a foundation stone in the church. And Jesus says to this church, the gates of hell shall not, shall never prevail against it. And he's not actually talking here about evil powers. Gates of hell was a phrase used in Jewish literature at the time for death. 
He's basically saying the church will never be extinguished. It will never be kind of consumed by death. Nothing's ever going to get hold of it and push it down and destroy it. And you know what? We can look across 2,000 years of history and say that's exactly right. That's exactly true. Though people have opposed the church, though they've opposed Christians, though there's been persecution, though there have been deliberate attempts to try and squash the church and stop it completely, the gates of hell have never been able to and will never be able to overpower this church, this new community that God is building. And he promises Peter, he says to him, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. To give him the keys, he's saying, I'm giving you power. I'm giving you authority. I'm giving you a role to play in the building of this church, in the coming of God's kingdom. And this binding and this loosing, what's, what's that kind of about? At the time of Jesus, that language is used for all kinds of things, but the best explanation in the context here is he's saying that as Peter and as the church after him proclaim the good news of the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus, and as they lay out the teaching of Jesus and call people to live his way, The results that come from that, people's responses to the gospel, people's responses to teaching about Jesus, is the binding and the loosing. And he's not saying that we do stuff down here, and then God goes, oh, okay, that's happened, okay, that's all right, I'll give my thumbs up to that. He's saying, just the way he writes it, he's saying that the things that happen down here will be reflections of the decisions that God has already made. The Bible's really clear, God is in control. God has a plan, God works out his plan. When we preach the gospel, things are bound or things are loosed. And that reflects the decision that God has already made in heaven. But what's really amazing about this, what's really exciting about these keys, about us binding and loosing, is that it means we get to play a role. We partaking, we sharing God's authority, God's power. It's not that God goes off, builds the church on his own, extends the kingdom on his own, does it all on his own. He says, no, 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 you, my followers, you're involved. I want you to play a part. I want you to be involved with this. But then this little bit ends by Jesus strictly charging the disciples to tell no one that he's the Christ. You've got to think, Jesus, what are you doing? You've just said they've got it right. They've realized who you are. This is what we want everyone to know. Surely you should be saying, go, tell everyone. Why are you saying, don't tell anyone? Keep it quiet. Keep it to yourselves. Well, perhaps actually they haven't quite got it right yet. They're beginning to understand who Jesus is, but they haven't really understood what that means yet. They can't respond rightly because they haven't actually seen who he is. And that's what happens in what follows. As soon as they say, Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus is able for the very first time in this gospel to begin to explain what that looks like. What does it look like to be the Christ? What's he going to do? What's going to happen? He starts to explain he's going to go to Jerusalem, the capital that he'll suffer at the hands of others, that he'll be killed, that he'll be raised from the dead. As I said, he hasn't said any of this so far in the story, but once they know who he is, it's like he can begin to fill in the meaning of what that looks like. And it's clear that he needed to do that because Peter just doesn't get it. Peter cannot get his head around him. He takes Jesus aside. He starts rebuking him, starts warning him, no, no, Jesus, that's crazy. That's never going to happen. You can't say that. And Peter's response kind of makes sense, actually. Nobody at the time of Jesus was expecting the Messiah to come and to suffer and die. 
We have loads of texts and stuff from the time. Nobody was expecting a suffering, dying Messiah. The Messiah was going to be this violent warrior. There was going to be this great bloodbath. He'd come, he'd lead an army, they'd get rid of the Romans, they'd establish the people in their freedom to live with their own rulers, to live with God in their land. No one thought the Messiah would come and would suffer and would die. But Jesus is saying, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And far from being one who kills, he's going to be one who will be killed. The victor is going to become the victim. The warrior is going to become the wounded. This radical, shocking truth of who Jesus really is, it wasn't what people were expecting. It's not how the story's kind of meant to go. And that's why Peter turns to Jesus and says, no, 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 you've got it wrong. He rebukes him. He says, that's never going to happen to you. And that's why Jesus had commanded them not to tell people. They weren't ready to tell people because they didn't fully understand what was going on. But Jesus knows it's necessary. He knows it's the plan. He knows it's the path he must walk. And so he turns. He turns so that all the disciples can hear him. And he rebukes Peter. He says to him, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was basing his understanding of the path that Jesus had to walk, not on what God said or what God thought or what God had revealed, but on what he thought, what people thought and what people wanted. And that means that this little passage ends on a note of challenge to us. Matthew wants us to hear the question to ourselves, even as we see it being asked to the disciples, of who do we say Jesus is? Who do I say that Jesus is? But it's not just about recognising a title, it's do you really get what that means? Do we really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Son of the living God? And are we really prepared to submit ourselves to that? It's so easy to be like Peter, to kind of think, well, the people, the people think Jesus is this good person, or he's a clever teacher, a, a wise guy, maybe even like a miracle worker. And then to think, but I know that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. But is our view of what Jesus is like more shaped by what the Bible says, by the reality of the truth of what God's revealed to us, or by what we want it to be, or what people or what tradition says to us? Sometimes the place we see this is, when we hear some of the hard things that Jesus says. Some of the things we find a bit difficult to stomach. And sometimes you hear people say things like, oh, my Jesus would never say that. My Jesus isn't like that. That's because we've made Jesus in our own image, rather than recognising that we're made in his image. It's that question of how do we feel when we read in this very gospel, Jesus says things like the fact that one day he'll say to some people, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. How do we feel when we hear Jesus say, love your enemies, pray for those who are persecuting you? How do we feel when Jesus says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household? If our response is to kind of think, well, I don't like that bit, my Jesus isn't like that. Friends, kind of humbly suggest we've made Jesus in our image. We're setting our minds on the things of man not setting our minds on the things of God. It's really easy to confess that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Lord even, and yet not actually recognise who that is, not actually submit ourselves to him. If we want to be true, faithful followers of Jesus, we need to know who he really is. We do that by reading his words, seeing what he's like, seeing what he says. And when it kind of clashes with what we want it to be, we submit ourselves, we say, I'm setting my mind on the things of God. 
not on the things of man, not on what I want. So where is your mindset? Where does your view of Jesus come from? Does it come from the world around you, from your ideas, from tradition, or does it come from the word of God? What he has revealed to us, what we see in the life of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. Who do you say that Jesus is? For some of us today, one of the responses from this passage will be to repent. To recognise that actually we've been kind of looking at Jesus wrongly and we need to turn away and to admit who he is. And it will be to submit. To say to Jesus, Jesus, some of the stuff you say I find really hard, but I'm choosing to submit. I'm choosing to recognise who you really are. So Peter's misunderstanding of Jesus led to a wrong response. And so Jesus comes in, he explains what it really means for him to be the Messiah. And that's to really get that, you've got to set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of man. And now that Jesus has clarified his role, now they've got a better picture of who he is, he's cleared up this mistaken identity, he begins to explain the disciples' role. How is it that you rightly respond to the Messiah who comes and suffers and dies and is raised again? Let's pick up what he says in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus says that to really follow him, to really be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, means to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and then to follow after him. To be a real Christian is to follow Jesus on the path of suffering. He's walked the path, and now we take up our crosses and we walk it after him. This is exactly what Jesus did. He denied himself. When he prays the night before he's going to be executed in the garden, he prays, not what I will, but you will. He denies himself. He denies himself his own claim to peace and comfort, even his own claim to life. He denies it and submits himself to God's will. And Jesus literally carried his cross. When he was walking to the place of execution, he would have carried the cross being the cross uh, uh, on his back. It would have been hard, it would have been heavy, it would have been painful. But far more difficult than any of the physical stuff was the knowledge that he was walking to be executed. And that for him, that would also mean experiencing upon himself all the punishment of God for every wrong thing that we've ever done. Jesus is saying we're called to do the same. To deny ourselves, to say and to live out Not what I will, but what you will. To give up our claims to peace and comfort and luxury, getting what we want, the careers and relationships, all the money, whatever it might be for us, we deny it in order to follow God and his will. And we take up our crosses, things we carry that might be painful, might be really difficult, might be really tough. But we're following Jesus on that road. And we do it knowing that Christian life isn't easy, Christian life isn't meant to be easy, but Christian life is a road of suffering That leads to glory. Jesus' road of suffering didn't end with the suffering. It didn't kind of just stop there. He was then raised to life, returned to be with God the Father. And the wonderful promise of the good news of Jesus is that this life is tough. Following Jesus is tough. It's a road of suffering, but it's a road which leads to glory. 
When on that final day, we sung about it today, we're raised in new life. We spend eternity with him, we ask the protection, perfection, where there's nothing to deny ourselves of, we don't want anything God doesn't want. There's no crosses to carry because everything is perfect. Everything has been put right. And so what does this look like to deny yourself to carry your cross? It will look different for all of us. All of us will have different areas of life. But all of us will have desires, what the Bible calls desires of the flesh, sinful desires, things we want to do, ways we want to live, which are out of keeping with, are in conflict with what God wants for us, what actually God knows is the best for us. We have to choose to deny ourselves those things. When they're lying to us, telling us they're what's going to make us happy, we deny them, we push them away. And all of us will have dreams and plans, things which aren't like inherently wrong, but they may not be what God is calling us to. Things we thought our life would be like, or things we want in our life, but actually Jesus calls us to go on a different path. There'll be times when it's right for us to deny ourselves our dreams and our plans. This might affect our relationships with family and friends. For some people, that's a real-life example. Actually, choosing to follow Jesus faithfully means their family and their friends reject them. They can't cope with it, they can't understand it, they can't fathom what they're doing and they get rejected. It might be in our careers, it might be actually choosing to deny ourselves is even though we want to go as far as we can in our career, actually we want to put Jesus first. And because we know Jesus is calling us to focus some time and some energy on this, it means we can't give every waking hour to our career. Some of us it will be our relationships. One example of this would be staying in a tough marriage because you know that before God you've made this commitment, you know before God it's the right thing to do. That is a case of denying yourself, denying what you want to do, and taking up your cross. There are many more examples we could give, and each one of us will have things in our lives where this is in evidence. But you might be thinking, but why would we do this? What's the point? Is it really worth it? And Jesus knows that's what we're thinking. That's why he takes the rest of the verses to explain the reasons why it's worth denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. First of all, verse 25, he says it's worth it because in losing our life, in denying ourselves for the sake of Jesus, we find life. There's this topsy-turvy, unexpected thing. Actually, as we deny ourselves, as we die to some of what we want, we find that actually that death brings fullness of life. We find actually it's the very best life we can ever experience. It might be painful and difficult. It might look impossible. And frankly, friends, it might be difficult. It might be painful. But it's not impossible. And it is good we find real life in it. Life following Jesus, whatever the pain, whatever the difficulty, whatever the trials, whatever the self-denial, is always, always worth it. It's always the best life we can live. It's the life we're made for. And it always leads to glory, eternity with him. Countless generations of Christians can testify this is true. So many of us in this room will say, yeah, I can testify that that is true. I can testify that that is true. For me, part of what denying myself and carrying my cross means is in relation to my sexuality. Many of you know I'm same-sex attracted. And so to faithfully follow Jesus requires me to deny myself desires I might have, deny myself the chance of having a husband, a chance of having kids, to deny myself kind of the dreams I might have had of what my life would look like, to take up a cross which on a daily basis can be painful and difficult, but to walk that path following Jesus, knowing it's worth it. Friends, I can tell you it's worth it. Nothing compares to Jesus. Nothing is as good as life with him. No husband, no kids could ever compare to a life with Jesus. Why would you do this? Because actually, even in dying to yourself, you find real life, the best life. 
And in verse 26, Jesus earths this in like really real, tangible stuff. He just says, well, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? He's kind of saying, say you don't deny yourself. Say you get everything here that you want. Is that really worth it if you forfeit your soul for all of eternity? Is it really worth having everything you want right now, no difficulties, if all of eternity you're separated from him? You miss out on the life he could give you. Or he says, what should a man give in return for his soul? He's saying, what can really be of such great value that that is more valuable to you? an eternal life with Jesus. What can really be worth forfeiting this for? And in the last two verses, he's basically emphasising that point by pointing out that this is a real thing to consider. He says this is important because there's a day when he's coming back. He says the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. The Bible's really clear there's a day when Jesus returns. Every eye sees him, the dead are raised. Every one of us will stand before him and will be judged according to what we've done. And notice, we're not saved by what we've done. The things that we've done are the proof that we put our faith in Jesus to rescue us. None of us, on the basis of what we do, have any chance before a holy God. But in the same way that apples and pears distinguish between two trees that look utterly identical, the way we will have lived, the works we have done, will be the evidence before Jesus and before all people that we had put our trust in Jesus. We had his life in us. We had been transformed by him. How you follow Jesus is the evidence of whether you really are following Jesus. Whether you follow Jesus in this way is the evidence of whether you really are a follower of him. And the final verse, he's basically telling us that day is coming. He says there are actually some people who are right there listening to him at that moment who will still be alive when it's the Son of Man comes into his kingdom. And this is another really kind of debated point because people will say, well, if Jesus is talking about his return, then he was wrong because those people are all dead and Jesus hasn't come back. But notice he doesn't say the same thing. Verse 27, he talks about the Son of Man coming with his angels and the glory of his Father. But verse 28, he talks about the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's much more likely that Jesus is talking about his resurrection, his ascension. When Dave read Daniel 7 earlier, notice, the Son of Man goes to God. He doesn't come from God. Jesus is saying, there are some people still alive here who are going to be alive when the Son of Man, when Jesus goes to God. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to be with God the Father. And then through the sending of his spirit to the church, to us, the Son of Man comes in his kingdom in the sense that the kingdom of God is extended through us. Those keys we hold, that binding, that loosing, the kingdom, the authority we, uh, we have and we hold, it works out through us. He's basically saying, guys, the process which leads to the day when he returns, when he judges every single one of us according to what we've done, is starting there and now. He's basically saying... Take this seriously. How you live now matters. And any difficulty now will be worth, any difficulty will be worth it when you stand before him on that day. So the challenge for us is, are we following Jesus on this path? Are we denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following him day after day after day? Have we recognized, do we really believe that nothing, nothing is as valuable as life with Jesus. For some of us today, there'll be things that we need to respond, we need to repent, which means we realize we're walking in the wrong direction, walking away from God, doing the wrong things, and so we choose to stop, to recognize that's wrong, and to turn and to walk towards him, knowing he's promised to forgive us and welcome us in, and that he would empower us to walk on that right path. Some of us, even today, would have had things that God has highlighted that we need to deny to ourselves. 
It might be sinful desires. It might just be dreams and kind of plans we have that actually God's saying, I'm asking you to lay those down because I'm asking you to go here rather than to go there, to do this rather than to do that. But I also feel, God, this morning wants to say there are some of us here who are already doing this. And today I just feel God wants to come and he's going to whisper into some hearts the, the well done, the keep going, the promise that every step will be worth it. However difficult it feels, however painful, however many tears you're shedding, every step, every moment will be worth it. Can I invite the band to head up, please? So who do you say Jesus is? Is your view of Jesus shaped more by man, humans, what you want it to be, what the world says it is? Or are you setting your mind on the things of God, listening to what God says in his words, submitting to who Jesus is? Maybe today you need to submit to Jesus afresh. Maybe actually the application to you is go home, read the Bible, read the Gospels. What's this Jesus really like? And how are you responding? Are there areas of your life where you need to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him? And what do you feel God's saying to you today? Maybe we're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. You've never heard of this before. You've never made that step of saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow him. Friend, you can do that today. Jesus' arms are wide open, inviting you in. You know, the wonderful thing is he forgives us for all the stuff we do wrong. And then he says, come and follow me. He's done everything that's necessary. And there's a free invitation to us to come and join this path of discipleship. If that's you today, while we sing a song a moment, just express that to God in your own words. You don't need the right words. Just talk to God in your heart. And then make sure that at the end you come and grab someone. Some of us will be down the front. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you. We're going to just sing a song now, a chance to engage with God, a chance to listen to God. That's what I want to encourage you to do. Listen to God. What is he saying to you this morning from this? What areas of change do you need to have? What areas of challenge are there for you? What areas of words of encouragement does he want to bring to you? Can I invite you to stand? I'm going to hand over to the band and they'll lead us and we'll respond to this song.